Hello, hello, dearest patrons. Welcome to another Alpha Bunga Bunga Reading Club. My name is Alex Hohili, coming to you exceptionally from Belgrade, Serbia, rather than Sao Paulo, Brazil, where I normally find myself. And as always, it's me and Philip Cunliffe and George Hor. Hello, guys. Hey. Fortunately, not all of us are as lucky to be able to travel, so we're still stuck in our usual places and not in uh, not in uh, beautiful uh, European capitals, or at least interesting I'm, European capitals. I'm in I'm in European capital. I find myself <laughs> in true. London, no, UK. The, the UK has <laughs> left so, Europe. The UK has left Europe. I need to remind you, and uh, that's actually the topic. Which of is our... indeed the topic. Yeah, yeah exactly. Okay, so uh, George, why don't you tell? us what we're going to be talking about quite specifically because this is your bag here so go for it yeah so we're talking about uh, the breakaway <clears throat> and so yeah i've been been tasked with introducing this being in the, the capital of the, the breakaway state um so this is the third um in our in our trilogy if you will of perry anderson uh london review of books articles and so in in preparing for this i was thinking you know, what are some trilogies where the third movie is the best? Return of the King, The Last Crusade, The Good, The Bad and The Ugly. Maybe if it's the, the, the last of those, I'll let, let listeners decide who is uh, the good, who is the bad and who's the ugly of the three of us. Um, anyway, the first of the, this is how I, I prepared. I was obviously been, being very studious, very diligent. Uh, the first of the three you was- You forgot the um, Aliens movies. Yeah. That, no, I think Aliens is is- is probably the best though i didn't want to include that because that would have been the second one which was was i believe your one phil so the first was on uh, european integration so this is anderson's study specifically of um the dutch scholar luke van middelaar who um is theorizes the process no, he's of, dutch not um, irish though do you want to try that again that's I, think that, I think that was a good a, that was a good dutch accent um yeah. i used to live in the netherlands so i should yeah. be able to do it but um they all speak such good English that obviously my Dutch is non-existent. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, so that's about the, the way in which a series of coups um, of various sorts brought uh, the EU, brought Europe together. The second one was on the ECJ, so European um, Court of Justice. So the comparison there that Anderson stages is with the, the US Supreme Court. And then the third one today's is on the first big rupture of the European Union, which is, of course, Brexit. So topic which I don't think we've discussed previously on this podcast so we get to uh, finally get around to it now we actually have many episodes oh, ad nauseam um, for some of us um, I can't get enough of it though so anyway so yeah the breakaway Perry Anderson a London Review of Books 21st of January 2021 so the key questions that he he kind of answers in this are what explains Britain's departure from the EU half a century after joining it and what light does this cast on the future of Europe itself so yeah, quite quite a lot to talk about here. Um, but yeah, as, as I said, we've talked about these issues previously. So first question is how, so one of the things which Anderson does is obviously try and like, in his characteristic uh, way of summarizing, uh, you know, massive amounts of information very um, succinctly and with, with quite a degree of flair and style, um, how compelling do we find his description of the two camps, so the Remain and the Leave camp in, in the British um, in the British case, which I can I can just, if you will permit me, uh, read a little bit uh, of. So politically, the two camps were divided by contrasting perceptions of what was at stake in the referendum. The Remainers consisted essentially of two groups: those who were moved principally principally by cultural issues, and those principally by economic issues. For the first group, composed of the young and the and most of the well-educated. The driving force was overwhelmingly a hostility to chauvinism, a rejection of the blind xenophobia and racism that threatened, they believed, to make Britain a suffocating prison of reaction. For the second group, leaving the EU threatened living standards, which were bound to drop cruelly on exit. Leavers were also divided into two groups. For the first, overwhelmingly located in the plebeian categories C2DE, that's marketing uh, categories of social class, the key issue was control over their own and the country's destiny, something that could only be secured by departure from the EU. For the second, it was recovery of the independence that had been the basis of Britain's prowess in the past. To these more general considerations, control of immigration and borders came second. Close to three quarters of Remainers thought Britain a better country than 30 years earlier. Nearly three fifths of Leavers thought it worse. So yeah, do we do we buy that that kind of overall description just to kick things off? I think I mean there's of the two camps which competed. It's less. I should. I think it's worth noting. It's. Uh... 
it feels a bit tired compared to the other two. There's far less of all the kind of the Baroque, I don't know, filigree that Anderson likes, which with which Anderson likes to generally, all the Latinate kind of phrases with which he likes to ornament um, and all the flourishes with which he likes to kind of decorate his text. And that's lacking in this one. And I don't know if that's maybe he just ran out of steam or if it um, tells us something a bit more that there's still kind of, we still perhaps he doesn't feel like he has enough perspective on the issue in order to be able to do all of his usual kind of decorative flourishes. But that aside, I think it is and it isn't. It's too, I, don't, I think it's a bit unkind to um, kind of conservative middle-class Brexiters, many of whom I think um, understood the arguments for democracy quite well, even if, even if they would also be um, old-fashioned nationalists in other respects and perhaps even nostalgics. I think they still understood the arguments for democracy and sovereignty quite well. And on the other hand, I think it um, understates the, on the other side, on the Remain side, I think it understates the irrational character of the commitment to um to or the i suppose how shall i say this i think it understates the viciousness of the supposedly kind of morally enlightened position and the fear of fascism and all the kind of um, anti-plebeian fury that was expressed in that but also its basic irrationality because um, so much of that constituent was um kind of as we've discussed many times you know downwardly mobile pmc who were kind of dreaming about free movement to Barcelona or, I don't know, wherever, Rome or whatever, as compensation for their shrinking Belgrade. life chances domestically. Belgrade isn't in the European Union, um, luckily, though, unfortunately. They can dream. It's still trying to get The bad it. food there. George. Anyway, so... Yes and no. I mean, I think, you know, it was lacking some of the usual flourishes, which in this case, I think maybe would have, uh, you know, kind of done more justice to the some of the complexity of um, of the two camps. I, I thought it was I thought it was fair enough because also he's portraying what those camps were in the lead up to Brexit and what happened after. And I think what you're, the, what you're portraying, Phil, is is something that it emerged. I mean, the, the sheer anti-democratic hostility was something that emerged from the Remainer, from what became Remainers with a capital R after after yeah. the election. Not that it was completely not present in the lead up, but uh, it's something that obviously became much more striking yeah, I mean, after. Uh, I think I think it's I think it's fair, and I think it's important that he identifies divisions within the two camps, which I think is clear, and which obviously is not the usual culture war presentation that is. Uh, self-servingly made by the leadership of those two camps, right? The leadership being, um, I guess, those who like to portray the EU as, um, yeah, this kind of cosmopolitan utopia uh, on the one hand, and then the other side who are, I guess, the Farages of, uh, of, of the world who are much more kind of nationalist, uh, maybe also amongst the within the Tory party have nostalgic dreams of empire and so on. I mean, those are the leaderships of the of the camps. And the reality is that uh, those camps are actually much more divided. And maybe the the other sides of it, and certainly the um, the leave side, which was more concerned with control, it was something that didn't actually get voiced enough. I mean, I know you guys tried, maybe there's some labor leavers who tried, but that but that kind of democratic argument was something that was ended up being, muffled, I think, by by both sides, really, um, in their own interests. So I think well, the way we, Anderson characterizes it is... It's not that we tried. Point. I mean, our resources were limited. No, and I think we, we succeeded in, you know, we succeeded in as much as we were um, called, you know, all sorts of um, slandered in all sorts of terrible ways for defending the idea of democracy at the national level. The um, true measure of success is when people call you a fascist. Is that no. what you're saying? No, but I mean, but what I'm what I'm getting at is that you, you know your view was not splashed across the front pages of newspapers, nor did it have mass demonstrations of of people. So, no, that's true. In that regard, that's it didn't have our that view much was also you know the the people the millions of people who did march and it was they were enormous you know and it as they were they were the middle class remainers, and you know as we know for the last thirty years I mean all the empirical political science data bears this out if you're more likely to go on a protest if you're middle class and yeah. they were tremendously you know on the pattern of the middle class protests of the last thirty years they were very carnivalesque everyone in fancy dress with having a great time having tea parties music bringing kids along you know all the kind of crazy works 
of anti going back right to anti-globalization marches. So, I mean, um, you know, it's very much in keeping with the middle class protest politics. And I think that's worth mentioning, too. Yeah. So <clears throat> I think there is something important just to pick up there that the the kind of the basic fact that both <laughs> Leave and Remain were, were coalitions, were not unitary um as, as as if anybody you know would would expect other than from a cultural perspective them to be these kind of unitary um opposed basically halves of, of the population or almost halves um but to move move through what i guess anderson's kind of reflections on the vote itself i mean do we agree with his explanation or at least with my reading of his explanation that there's you know there's a big role that new labor plays it's an inheritance of new labor and to a certain extent um that you have these two important factors this kind of very high levels of immigration without democratic contestation um and not being in the emu so not being in the european monetary union meaning that potentially leaving the eu was much less costly than it would could have been for example for greece I mean, I think that's that would be my summary of Anderson's explanation of the leave vote. Is that right? Yeah, it's an interesting one. I mean, so I'm sure that the um, you know I'm sure so the specific new labour aspect of immigration is the alacrity with which so Tony Blair was very committed to expansion of the European Union, and as well, and Anderson points out, and this is an important point, that also opening Britain's borders to um, to Eastern Europe, once those Eastern European countries former Warsaw Pact joined the European Union, it was by way of reward for their support during um, the Anglo-American invasion of Iraq in 2003. Um, and so hundreds of and far many more kind of people came from uh, Romania, Bulgaria, and especially Poland. Um, and I think that probably did contribute to the feeling of, um, of the lack of control and that the take back control slogan, that it would resonate so powerfully um, was linked to new labor and the other element of obviously was also that it wasn't it was um it was never politically defended so there was never a case made for it um in the sense of this even being kind of um you know there was never really a powerful case made for it about it being in national interest it was that it was um part of kind of a moral cosmopolitanism and if you opposed it then you were a nativist a xenophobe um a racist even though it was effectively um locked in to a degree, I mean, Britain could have chosen to um, to uh, stagger the, the acceptance of East European labour, as many other EU states did. But nonetheless, I mean, freedom of movement was an inevitability um, once you signed up for so-called freedom of movement. Anyway, the point being this, right, that the I think it did play a role um, in exacerbating it. And the Eurozone, though, I'm not so I'm not so sure about. I wonder if, you know, I mean, it's true. It would have been much harder to win the argument for leave had Britain been in the Eurozone. And I think Anderson is right to credit the former Chancellor, ex-Prime Minister Gordon Brown in keeping us out of the Eurozone. But whether I've, I guess I worry whether he's making excuses for the weakness of separatism in the rest of the European Union. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that's probably the most interesting point in the whole thing, actually, and something that maybe we can pull out and discuss because Anderson gestures at it and pulls that idea of um, Britain in some ways being allowed to leave, being able to leave, having the conditions in which uh, people might vote to leave and it might actually happen because it's in the EU, but out of the Eurozone. Uh, and which is a point that's made by some of the uh, journalists and discussants of Europe that he pulls out and, and brings into his uh, discussion uh, with, without ever really taking sides on it, he kind of gestures at it, but it's not entirely clear whether Anderson endorses that view. So to me, it seems quite plausible. I mean, I think obviously there's the backdrop of Britain having much more traditional Euroscepticism, a tradition of seeing itself somewhat apart from con continental Europe, the fact that European affairs aren't discussed within discussed in newspapers in nearly as much depth in British newspapers compared to ones in France or Germany, for example, or much less, you know, in smaller countries where it naturally figures much more largely national politics. Um, but, but there's also this issue, yes, that it's not in the Euro. And I think there, yeah, I think that I think I'd probably buy that argument that if Britain had joined the euro, uh, the cost for leaving would have been higher and it would have been more prohibitive. And, you know, 
the the referendum was won by you know four percentage points. I think that's probably would have been you know with it with a full on assault of like project fear by anti uh, anti leaving anti leavers you know arguing that Britain will will um, face disaster if it leaves, which maybe wasn't that plausible uh, given the fact that it was only leaving the EU and not the euro. Changing the currency and leaving the currency union, I think you know, is more significant. And so I, I don't know. I'm, I'm curious what you it guys does. Think, No, I mean, it does. I mean, there's no doubting that. But at the same time, I mean, the point is, if there is a political will to leave, then the way will be found. And if there is a political if will to leave, it, then the costs, they will come. the costs will be accepted. You know, if there is a political will to leave, which is to say, if people see um, the benefit of withdrawal compared to remaining in the kind of um, the austerian torture chamber of the monetary zone. So Anyway, I mean, it's not a big point. It was only to say I wondered slightly if he perhaps, uh, if he kind of conceded too much. Well, I mean, I mean I'm mean, i also interested with like George thinks about this because I mean, I, I, I genuinely think that, yeah, political will, but there wasn't that much political will to leave. It was still a narrowly, you know, narrowly contested. Or yeah. No, no, no I don't, I don't, disagree. I don't victory, disagree. So. I'm just saying that, you know, that I think he underestimates the importance of political will in general. But okay, but so, just just one thing about about the euro, of course, that Britain probably would have uh, might have suffered somewhat from from it, but obviously not to the degree that Southern European countries did. I mean, it might have suited Britain quite well to be in the euro. I don't know, especially from it, it might have led to even greater divergences regionally. So I mean, I guess these things can, we could maybe calculate it out or try to try to figure out what how exactly that would have played and where that would have left Britain you know would it have let, yeah led to greater I mean, political will to leave or less that I mean, it's a, um, yeah. I'm curious no i mean phil alex did say that he was interested to hear what i had to say so i will i will uh, jump in here the yeah i mean it's it's a counterfactual and i i think the you know there was already a pretty um pretty impressively coordinated kind of project fear or liberal establishment or however you want to put it uh, campaign towards towards remain um and would the additional uh, cost projections of of you know if we had been in the euro would that have, have changed things i mean it's, in some ways it's impossible to say but i think in you know to, to take things where they are at the moment it's you know i think the one thing that has been shown is that the catastrophist projections of what just leaving the EU would be like without leaving the euro um, haven't really been realized I don't think the total collapse of British society that was um, that was predicted well maybe it has happened actually but for a different reason um, that you know coronavirus has 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 contributed to to the cancelling of some parts of society but it hasn't been the economic um, meltdown due to you know no goods being able to get uh, across the channel and everybody sort of starving and getting into a kind of, um, you know, post-apocalyptic um, situation. But yeah, I mean, it's a, it's an interesting, it's an interesting point because it does, it does have implications for, you know, who could potentially leave the EU next, you know, right. if it's Italy, what is, the, what is the plan for leaving the Eurozone? What is the, you know, what is the, because those costs, as you, as you say, Alex, will be very unevenly distributed um, across Italy. That's, um, I mean, in, that's a mild way of putting it. You know, I mean, it yeah. will be tremendously difficult and not just unevenly distributed. I mean, it will be in, an enormously kind of wrenching um, uh, national kind of uh, calamity. Well, uh, and, and as something that, that Anderson points out in relation to Britain, um, is that you know people's, but also you know prospectively to to any other country which would le- want to leave the euro is that you know savings would be denominated in euros and then. But well, it's the primary have, reason, right? Yeah. I mean, that's what people once once you're locked in, it's very hard to leave. Um, but I mean, at some level, again, I mean, you know, those it's one of these things. I mean, do you stay in a burning building or not? No, absolutely. I think the political will is necessary, you know, for that, and countries should seek to leave the euro. But yeah. It, it, what what if you could what if you could reform that building? What if you could kind of remain within the building and rebuild it from from the inside? Because you're in you're inside, so you have while to they're on fire. It's true, <laughs> and I guess because it's on fire, it makes it easier to rebuild. So because literally you know, a burning platform. Exactly, it's a really yeah, it's a good point. Okay. Anyway, um, so one thing which which I found interesting was Anderson's remarking on the similarities between 
that even remain campaigns in their nostalgia, because I think this is one thing which has often been um, attributed more to, to leave than to remain. But we did have, a, I think, an interesting episode, really interesting episode with David Edgerton, episode 136. In fact, Banana Monarchy, talking about narratives of national decline and how they played into both remain and and leave, you know, Labour and, and Conservative narratives. Um, but Anderson says that the cry from both camps says enough about their common motivation. What? Be reduced to the rank of the Swiss or the Norwegians. Apologies to any Swiss listeners or Norwegian listeners or any Swiss uh, or half-Swiss uh, hosts of the podcast. Anderson continues, suppressed or blurted, nostalgia for great power status, united the com combatants in the referendum, compulsively grappling with each other in the dark. So is he right about this? You know, is was, was Remain just as nostalgic as leave? This is one of the sharpest points, I think, in the piece. And, um, you know, on the whole, it's, I don't know that, it, you know, I think I stick to what I said at the start, which is that I think democracy was a powerful motivator. I say that off the back of the way I read the opinion polls and also off the back of my kind of personal experience of the kinds of conversations your, I had. Your lived various, experience. Off the back of the political meetings and so on that I, um, in interacting with people and how they describe their kind of understanding of the situation. But so I suppose what was what's interesting, though, is they had no way to talk about a future without this kind of retrospective um, understanding of Britain's status as a great power, whether, you know, kind of the need to atone for um, imperial sins in the form of a cosmopolitan political project which would maintain Britain's place in the world or whether to restore that lost imperial glory. So I think, you know, it's kind of the people's democratic instincts um, never really found a political vision that properly suited them. And they could only kind of clutch at images, you know, these kind of faded images from the past. And so he's right about that, I think. Um, but there is that, like I say, there is that kind of, um, there was a gap, I think, between many people's instinctive orientations and the political kind of frames which they adopted to relate to each other and to motivate themselves. And this was the big, the absence of a political vision for what, um, for what a, a Britain, a post-imperial, post-EU Britain should look like was never successfully articulated um, by Leave. Alex, what about you? Speaking on behalf of, of, of our Swiss comrades. <laughs> no, I mean, I think that's well put, you know, that democratic instincts, at least amongst a section of the population, uh, didn't find a political vision. And, 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 you know, that probably applies to many people who voted Remain, not people who became then later Remainers, um, but people who even voted Remain who have... Uh, you know, democratic instincts, but were skeptical of of leave, and who also didn't find a vision or a way to express uh, their their democratic vision um, either. Indeed, um, many. I mean, there were many who supported um, respect, who didn't support the second referendum, and wanted the vote respected, yeah. even though they voted for the European Union. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the one thing that George pulled out already in, in quoting from the thing that, you know, one thing that divided Remainers and Leavers was that Leavers saw that Britain had become much worse in the past 30 years, whereas Remainers thought it had, had become much better. And, you know, to a certain extent, they're probably talking about different things. Um, you know, for, for the ones who think it became much better, it's because they emphasize, you know, maybe social liberalism, which I think they're correct about. Uh and that that is something that in a way that Britain has improved, it's much less rooted in, uh, you know, the ruling ideology is no longer racism in the way that it maybe was before. Um, but at the same time, things have obviously materially declined, especially in uh, outside of the southeast of the country. Um, people have less power and less control over their own lives and so on. So I think, yeah, I, that's that's another way that I guess nostalgia plays its plays uh, plays a part. And fundamentally there's this yeah both as uh, as we've already said are kind of nostalgic for a great power state as they just see different means of going about it and that's the less democratic angle to it and i think it's something that applies to both uh, remainers and leavers or at least to those more elite sections of remainers and leavers um, who both are wedded to having a, a global britain whether you see that you know through a a, a reheated commonwealth or through uh, you know uh pursuit of its interests through the European Union. So one, one thing just that um, struck me while, while the two of you were just discussing that is actually the, I think the nostalgia of this kind of super Remainers or the Romaniacs, if, if you will, was actually for kind of like 2012. So like the London Olympics, that was the, the pinnacle of pre-Brexit of pre uh, Britain. But anyway, 
So yeah, so then Anderson moves to discussing some of the literature of the period, some of the kind of ideological throth um, produced, and this is before the before the Brexit uh, process as well. Um, so he focuses on three conservative writers. So you've got Ferdinand Mount, who was a former aide to Thatcher, Peter Oborn, who was the author of The Triumph of the Political Class and former chief political commentator of The Telegraph, which for our American listeners is often called The Tory Graph because it's a right-wing um, broadsheet. Um, and Jeffrey Wheatcroft, who was a journalist previously associated with The Spectator, so another kind of Tory-leaning um, publication, kind of the, the 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 new statesman of the of, of the right. I would say they share some similarities, probably more than they would like to admit. Um, so yeah, and so Wheatcroft, who was a journalist previously with the Spectator, among um, other papers, and so these three, he says, essentially represent a stream of kind of educated Tory kind of opinion um, that eventually ended up being vengeful, remorseful, and critical his words about Brexit, but paid really little attention to the institutions of the EU, instead seeing the whole thing as essentially like, oh, these terrible domestic politics, it's all all idiots, all being rubbish, and, you know, can't they just get a grip on things and be sensible? Um, and then he moves on, and this is, to, to talking about two of the leading, the work of two of the leading authorities on Thomas Hobbes. So they've got Noel Malcolm at All Souls and Richard Tucker Harvard, um, Harvard, and Hobbes is important here. And we've actually had a, um, a reading club previously on Richard's work, so we won't go into that in too much detail. Although it's a really good part of the of the uh, of the article, and definitely, I think the summary is is very, it's very interesting where he locates Richard's work. And I think just to bring one point out, Hobbes being really important because he is obviously the the, the former foremost theorist of of sovereignty, and this, of course, was a central um, theoretical question of the um of the of the referendum process or the brexit process so one one point just that i would want to make is that he as anderson often does like one of these <clears throat> summaries that he that he makes and he kind of draws out this distinction in rousseau between government and sovereignty simple but but powerful distinction and sort of saying that well really this there, there was a, a conflict between um, these two that the you know the idea of Brexit and this is what he attributes to Richard Tuck was the desire to become sovereign again and put government back where it belonged the people to become sovereign that is held back by a lack of political vision capable of giving effect to the popular uh, popular longing to regain control of society so to move on to some of the wider questions and then maybe to take the the three articles uh, oh three articles um, as a whole um, do we agree with Anderson's essentially, this is part of his conclusion, I think, that uh, Westminster is vastly superior to what he calls the lacquered synarchy of Brussels? Yeah, I mean, no doubt in my mind, at least, that the simply by virtue of the fact that it's um, a democratic parliament, which once you've left the European Union, it has power, um, even in the kind of even in the with a strengthened executive and the more kind of presidentialism that we've seen in the British political system and despite the crown and the House of Lords and everything else, it still has far more democratic power and democratic legitimacy than any European Union institution. Um, I think it's worth noting, though, also that it's uh, it's very striking for um, for Anderson to admit this because so much of his historic project has been talking about the, um, the kind of the... Uh, outdatedness of British political institutions um, compared to the modernizing forces that have been at work in Europe. And he's flipped. I mean, originally in the 1970s, in the first referendum, when Britain joined the European Union or the earlier forms of the European Union, the economic community as it was back then, um, he was pro. He thought that it would be part of the project of modernizing and kind of upgrading this, the decrepit imperial structures of this faded great power. And I think the fact that he's forced now to admit so many decades later that the decrepit kind of um, moth-eaten parliament is superior to the shiny kind of plate glass buildings and parliaments of Brussels, I think that tells you something about he missed his fundamental characterization of the British nation state was misconceived to begin with. Um, mm. And that he was too taken in by all the kind of accoutrements of tradition with which Westminster and particularly the House of Commons is wrapped, um, you know, the kind of House of Lords and everything else that I already mentioned. And he, mi he misunderstood, in fact, I think, that the, um, the 
essentially, I mean, the gains of the English Revolution, however much they might have been kind of hidden behind Dermin and the executive power of the crown in constitutional monarchy and all of that, I think he really underestimated how far um, the power of parliament was um, entrenched in British politics. And so, that, I think, speaks into his how he's belatedly had to recognize that. Do you think undermined or do you think actually that it's a representation or, uh, you know, a symbol of decreasing expectations on his part and on our part, which is to say he had this critique well-founded of, you know, the traditionalism and uh, kind of anti-democratic aspects of the British well, political exactly system. That. And then, hang on, so, hang on, and that, and that now you have to fall back even on this kind of imperfect parliament, you know, elected through first past the post, which isn't, which is inimical really to actual majoritarian democracy, as well as all the rest, the unelected lords and the rest, um, because, precisely because the EU ha is so bad and has become so much worse, it's important to remember, since Maastricht. Um, well, but he's forced into that. But I'm saying that, you know, so that what I was, I mean, what I was describing was the so-called Nair and Anderson thesis, which is the idea of um, Britain's essential backwardness. So Britain's backwardness or in all of its kind of institute, economic institutions that it didn't, um, that it's kind of uh, developed in particular ways that it was never really um, kind of, it was always oriented towards this kind of effete financial ruling elite, um, that it didn't have kind of properly trained people who knew how to run industry and engineering. I mean, this is all taken from David Edgerton's critique. So listeners should go back and listen to Banana Monarchy if they want to get more of this critique because they find it persuasive. But the idea was that Britain was backward. And I think the problem was that Anderson was too entranced by the trappings of tradition. When at the core of it, um, like I say, there was in fact the um, supreme kind of um, power of parliament, um, the commons, which abolished the lords during the period of the English Revolution. And then the lords was restored to be sure but always only at the pleasure of the commons. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's only, I think he, um, I think it would be possible to, I think it's possible to still probably, I think I'd say this, it's possible to extract that kernel of um, solid democratic power in the history of English parliamentarianism in a way that Anderson underestimated. It's an interesting one because I think the, the kind of British parliamentary system is is potentially more radical than it looks. You have the the vermin in ermine, and you know, no, no offense to any any peers who, who might be listening, um, but you or have vermin. this kind of. Or, or yeah, actually, sorry, yeah, they're the ones who really should be offended um, by that comparison. Um, but now you have this unelected upper chamber. You have all of this like like weird and kind of you know classically British or English like nonsense tradition. But actually, at the core of the political structure, there is a um, there is a, a potentially quite radically powerful parliament, and you just do, you just don't have that in the EU context. It's not it's not the same. And I think well, this and, is yeah. And, sorry, go on. Well, just and and I think part of British traditionalism is the fact of the lack of rupture. I mean, it's since the seventeenth century. You know, just this astounding institutional continuity whereas you know major european powers have been completely disrupted by war and revolution but and this is a point that richard tuck makes very well in in his book is that those are all co constitutional states which actually is is to their uh, discredit because they and tend to um, kind of lock in policies in the same way that like we've criticized the eu for doing that it happens to a lesser extent, also at, na at national level. So, you know, for the French constitution also limits what can be done and there's difficulties in actually changing the constitution. And, you know, American listeners will be, you know, familiar with this with their own constitution. And one of the advantages of Britain's lack of a written constitution, as it's always put, uh, is that um, things can be, the constitution could be just be changed through a normal vote in parliament. And that sovereignty and power of parliament is quite important. And I, I mean, and I say this as, as an instinctive Britain hater, um, I, I was quite uh, Why are you an instinctive Britain hater? He hates it because, be he's just, it's because, because he's British. It's because, no, it's because, of, because of the traditionalism and whatever. Like I just, because you he's, know, you need, you're a hipster. You're a Hoxton a good, hipster. No, because it needs a and good, like every Hoxton hipster. Cleanse, it needs a good cleansing it. war or revolution you to hate. just destroy <laughs> vast sections of its you rule hate class. Your own nation. 
anyway anyway um, so we were yeah i mean i think there's there's a lot a lot more to talk about um there and we've you know i think we we covered quite a lot of those points about constitutions being kind of class compromises at a certain point in time and not you know locking in certain um rules uh, in the richard tuck uh, episode of, of of the reading club a few uh, months ago hello listener alex here sorry to interrupt but we've got some very exciting news to tell you BungaCast is pregnant. The end of the end of history is soon here. The book, co-written by George, Phil, and myself, will be out on the 25th of June. The End of the End of History, Politics in the 21st Century, is our attempt to synthesize the discussions we've been having on this podcast over the past four years, and to advance an argument as to how and why the deadening end of history period had to end, as well as to look forward to what comes next, In the book, we describe what the end of history felt like, and why what we're now experiencing is such a huge rupture. The hysteria of neoliberal order breakdown syndrome, the rise and fall of the left populism of Bernie or Corbyn, multiple varieties of angry anti-politics around the world, new fronts of the culture wars and mass protests. These are all facets of our new time. We also look at how new ideologies are emerging under the impact of the pandemic, which are set to rule the world for the next decade. And of course, our evil patron saint, Silvio Berlusconi, makes a big appearance. It's available to pre-order now. Go to bungacast.com slash book for links and more info. Happy reading. We really do hope you enjoy it. One of the other um, kind of really challenging, it's not even a throwaway point, but just a, just a, a, a comment that Anderson makes towards the end where he says, that with the exception of Britain, it would be difficult to hold that the global financial crisis of 2008 has had any sustained or consequential effect. Um, and this, I thought, was really... Powerful statement. It's Yeah, I mean, you know, and particularly in the context of obviously our our end of, end of history thesis, like, is that a bit, therefore, Anglo-centric? Because I think that's one of the things that, 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 that we've sort of tended to argue on this on this podcast when we have been putting forward our own kind of opinions is that the you know that's the, the delayed effects of the financial crisis from 2008 coming to kind of 2016 period that has been um that has been one of the things which has ended the end of history so yeah are we just um parochial anglos and anglo haters i'd say two things i mean alex definitely is a parochial anglo anglo hater but aside i mean i don't think we are he's a self he's yeah he's a oh, self um, he's self-hating, self-hating anglo yeah self-hating anglo for sure um but that aside no i think i mean i think our i think the, the fact that britain has enjoyed the most the most lasting kind of and positive political consequences of the global financial crisis gives us a unique vantage point i think um i think it does and hopefully you know hopefully our listeners will agree um, but also with respect to the end of the end of history, our point has always been, and hope I mean, I think we've stressed this, hopefully we have, that it's not been the disintegration of the liberal technocratic order has not been nothing has substituted for it. So all you have is it's crumbling away and the kind of the populists and the revanchist liberals, um, techno populists indeed kind of um scouring all over the ruins but there is nothing has been built in its place and so that's what we've always said and so to that extent i think um we've been borne out because um you know syriza failed podemos failed corbyn failed i guess you've got joe biden but you know i mean i guess uh, the thing is i think you'd still expect a greater sense of greater change basically to put in the simplest possible terms uh than than you've had as a consequence of 2008 and it's it, it, the the fact is, I guess, is that you've had this earth-shattering crisis, uh, and it's the first time you've had such a deep crisis at a period um, when, at the end of mass politics, at the after the defeat of the working class, uh, and in a world without socialism. So you'd still expect it to be to be to have had more effect, you know, and, and not just. Um, being overthrown by new forces, but just to have crumbled somehow quicker. And yet what you've, what elites have managed to do is to buy time or kick the can down the road as, um, as Wolfgang Strick always puts it. And that's the kind of remarkable feature of our times, this kind of 
fumbling, uh, this kind of muddling through that that seems to continue happening. And that's part of the reason I think that Anderson asks towards the very end of this article, uh, you know, does is the EU sort of uh, interminable? Right. Like, is it just going to kind of carry on because he suggests, oh, is it there still a possibility of some kind of becoming a more supranational union or some sort of transformation? Or does it just kind of continue in its current form as it is? And the, the only reason one could ask something like that, given the EU's obvious crisis, is just to look at recent history and, and to look at the fact that it's so crisis ridden and yet nothing really seems to change which is the yeah. nature of our time. And it's what I've also called Brazilianization as well, because it's also a, a, another way. Oh my God. What? It, it, Again, it, we have to hear about Brazilianization. <laughs> Alex, tell, I, us, actually, tell us about Brazilianization. This, this is the everyone. first time I mentioned Brazilianization on this podcast. I actually would say that you guys have mentioned it far more than I have. But anyway, the point I can't is- I believe you stole our idea about Brazilianization. <laughs> <laughs> but the, anyway, the point, the point being is that it's a, a classic example of also a country which- kind of muddles through constantly with no clear breaks and that's the nature of the end of the end of history where it's increasingly crisis ridden but no no clear breaks no resolution yeah. uh and and Ooh. so on so and i, I think have actually a... the sorry, yeah thank it was only to say just to kind of underscore i think anderson's last paragraph is actually very good when he's kind of um all the dynamics the kind of cross-cutting dynamics that he identifies they all tend to reinforce the status quo so the, the kind of the populist challengers they present the kind of, you know, they're um, the barbarians at the gate that allow the liberal center to kind of keep on rallying itself. Yeah. Um, so, you know, if the populists do manage to get into the power, they're so kind of, um, you know, hapless and disoriented, unprofessional and don't know what even they really want to do beyond kind of a few basic things like immigration, that they easily become kind of assimilated to the ordinary kind of run and you've seen this in italy country of the future right so this is very um, obvious in italy at the moment the populist kind of incursions have been absorbed by the pre-existing political class and so in that context and locked under the kind of auspices of the european union there is it seems kind of uh, you know it's kind of this decrepit structure which nonetheless continues yeah, I'm I'm not sure that I agree that the last paragraph is good. I think actually it's a bit I mean the the buying time um idea of of strikes that you mentioned Alex. I think that that's something I've been thinking about quite a lot recently. I think it's just the the way he kind of outlines that it's it is the the, the dominant dynamic of um you know, I think of contemporary politics to a, to a certain extent. But yeah, I I I just feel like Ending this this trilogy of articles with a, with a question is you know is the current formula of the EU likely all the same to last indefinitely? Yeah, okay. I mean, like, where's the that's a very very weak conclusion in some ways. Like, what is given all the analysis and given all of the kind of um, the analytical power that's been applied across these three essays, it would be good to to see a bit more of a a stake in the ground um, <clears throat> to a certain extent from from Anderson. But actually, what I was going to say is that maybe what this this says and this is maybe even a more terrifying prospect than the, than italy or brazil being the country of the future what happens if it's england if it's ang anglification and you know this is the country of the future in the sense of you know this is the first rupture with the eu the, the eu being the paradigm end of history institution you know what happens if if we show the rest of the the world uh, its future you know think think about ponder that listeners you know what happens if if uh, suddenly <clears throat> all culture will become become British? All all political tendencies will will tend towards uh, um, Brexit oh. across the across the world. Um, yeah, maybe there's something maybe there's something in that. We need to replace Berlusconi with uh, Boris Johnson. I'm trying to think who. Boris Johnson. I yeah, that, that would send out. Some he already is a Berlusconi. That's the point. He already it was, is yeah. a Berlusconi. It was interesting. I was reading about um, in Argentina. So, funnily enough, um, there's apparently like in some kind of uh, dispute between one of the um, provinces, states of Argentina. Forgive any, uh, forgive my ignorance to any Argentinian listeners. Um, but I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm, uh, Argentina's kind of had a long uh, history of kind of. Um, wars over central government versus uh, kind of separatist provinces. Apparently, there's a movement for, auto for autonomy or separatism that has been renewed in the province of Mendoza in Argentina, and they're calling it Mendexit. Wow. 
that's I mean, you know, balkanization, I don't think is uh, no, no, obviously not. I don't I'm not I'm not suggesting that uh, that Bunga supports um, the process of uh, disintegrating Argentina far from it. I just thought it was interesting that even we're kind not of that, we're not that kind of uh, mid 80s British nationalists. Exactly. Um even that in kind of a provincial dispute in Latin America between central government, um, you know, and uh, kind of some, I don't know, whatever, you know, local dispute over kind of those kind of powers and devolved government, whatever, is framed in those terms. I'd, anyway, I thought it was curious that it has that kind of um, global cachet, which Alex will hate, but nonetheless is true. Brexit is coming to Brazil, so, Alex. Yeah, uh, global brexit or whatever um but yeah just to just so just to kind of reflect on these three um three articles not global britain but global brexit that's what we want (laughs) yeah um any any thoughts taking taking the the three uh together because you know these are quite you know quite long and detailed this could basically be a book i think essentially um a kind of study of of the eu um from the vantage point of of a post you know post-brexit continent will be a book now, I, I think w- one thing that one should say firstly about it as the sort of type of thing that it is, is that it's an intellectual landscape, presents an intellectual landscape, right? So the first one's about this organic intellectual of the EU, right? A kind of thinker of the EU who's quite sharp, but is very much of the institutions, right? It's not just about those institutions, but he comes very much from it and he gives voice to um, what is its, you know, particular genius, which is really the the way that it has proceeded through these backdoor coups all the time, um, if that's not too sexual an imagery. But anyway, um, and, you know, the second one looks at critics of the EU. Well, it wasn't until you said it. I was literally just about to say that. It was it was absolutely fine. And then you were like, if that isn't too sexual an imagery. So, um, yeah, just, just trying to keep it spicy at the end here. Uh, but the, and the second one looks at critics of the EU. And here, here in this third one, he kind of the, the the sort of intellectual history or whatever is a little bit thinner on the ground, and I think it's interesting that the three journalists he talks about, and I think they're mainly journalists, uh, he is just dis- very quite dismissive of because they're t- Tory Brexiteers who then kind of roll back on it, and they don't really come to any decisive conclusion. And then the kind of two sovereigntists he looks at, which George already mentioned, these scholars of Hobbes are also a bit more decisive, um, but. At no point does he identify, and I mean, in in some ways, Anderson is, I suppose, kind of subtly critical of the scholars that he surveys in not providing a sort of definitive answer or presenting anything new. I mean, he's even critical of uh, Chris Bickerton for for not kind of doing this, for just kind of laying out, I guess, the the, the problems with the EU um, and maybe suggesting comparison with national governments and and national democracy, but also not really suggesting any way forward. So as a whole, these three things are brilliant, you know, brilliant story of the EU. You read the three of them and like, there you go, you know, the EU and you know, the people who are thinking about the EU, the, the, the sharpest minds analyzing it. And yet you're none the wiser about what kind of political forces may lead to a different configuration in Europe. Uh, and I don't, Anderson doesn't make the effort to do that himself, but it's also the fact that as he's surveying other thinkers, uh, those don't provide him with it either. So, you know, maybe we are all fucked. Yeah. Well, I, I'm, you know, just maybe a final concluding point, having having read a lot of Anderson's stuff um, and always finding his, his writing um, worth a read. I mean, obviously it has the, uh, what was it? Baroque filigree, um, as as you put it, Phil. I don't know. Uh, certainly, that's cosmopolitan language. I don't understand. What so, <laughs> well, it certainly has some five dollar words. Let's let's put it that way. Um, but the yeah, I mean, I, I found this probably one of the least satisfying things of his that I've that I've read. Compare it to kind of considerations on Western Marxism, which is, I think, absolutely brilliant and really quite engaged because he's really trying to show how the tradition that he's a part of has has got to where it is. And, you know, he doesn't he, in in that book really say, you know, what here's the the next steps, the easy solutions. But certainly I think this is, you know, this is quite a live, there's been a live political debate. And there's, I think there is something missing, as you say, Alex, in terms of the the the, um, the link between the intellectual landscape, which is, you know, drawn with his characteristic kind of deafness um, and the kind of political 
forces which are which are competing and are going to kind of i guess move move things in a number of different directions um so yeah i think that's that's the that's where it left me kind of relatively less satisfied than some of the other things that he's that he's written but um yeah any 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 final concluding uh thoughts from either of the two of you or, or shall i wrap it no let, let's let's wrap it up uh and we'll be back that's course. a wrap that's all i had to say thank you for wrapping to say that we'll be back with another reading club uh, in a month or so's time Uh, we hope you enjoyed we look forward to any comments that you might have on this uh that's it for now catch you later bye-bye that's a wrap wrapped now it's wrapped like a little bow on top that does sound pretty wrapped yeah more sort of bow um double double i don't know i don't know any bows but it's it's quite pretty i would say it's kind of purple and magenta colors very very bunga surely it should be like deep blue with kind of gold trim for the eu mm, yeah like that. I, mm. okay i do like cool. the EU flag but flags are great you do in like general. it flags are, just flags in general are great I, the only ones which are bad are ones which are red white and blue because those are the most boring um so you know, flags with different sorts of colors. Yellows and greens, good. Uh, light blues are good. Oh, what, what, uh, what colors is the, is the Brazil flag? Oh, it's, oh but it's, it's dark blue. Yeah, no, the, the Brazil flag's all right. It's pretty different. Um, there's some great Caribbean flags, some great African flags, I would say. And some South South uh, Pacific flags are banging. I, I recommend listening yeah. to those out. Um, also, of course, you, you could, can have uh, your own flag for your own uh, recently devised sexuality, which everyone must now pay attention to, uh, lest they be uh, total reactionaries. So, you know, what happens everyone, if you have a flag for everyone? A re- <laughs> I'm assuming this is not this is not going out. No, it's going out. Um, it is going out. Yeah, this is part of the episode. So. Oh. oh, okay. Um, I don't have anything else to say. <laughs> you don't have anything on flags? Okay, maybe we'll leave it there. Thanks for listening, everyone. Yeah, I mean, to, to, maybe we could have Orange, a bonus. Just stop talking. Flag, just let him fucking flag <laughs> <episode>. <laughs> I'm never going to stop. <laughs> uh, it's like the Eurozone crisis. It just continues forever. Let's just, let's just kick, you know, let's just do another five minutes. Kick the can down the road. Kick the can down the road. Buying time. Buying time to talk about flags. We need a little flags. bit of fiscal stimulus. Not quite enough, but just enough to keep going. <laughs> Okay, I'm going to mute myself, so so that's it. (laughs) Bye.